And uh, we had dealt with in Genesis chapter 2, dealing with uh, the garden, showing that the tree of life, which was meant to uh, give life in the garden, it was uh, describing the life-giving and sustaining power of God and those who eat of it by faith. And now we come to our second little point tonight, this next tree, which we're going to find. So hold your place there in Genesis, and you can turn with me briefly uh, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I guess, is really where we're going to start tonight. We're going to be in a lot of scriptures tonight, too, by the way. So if you miss a reference, flag me down, tell me to slow down or stop and, and repeat it if, if, if I get excited, okay? And I mean it. If not, if not, y'all go miss it, all right? Uh, but Colossians chapter number 1 tonight uh, describes the second tree for us. As we're talking about this theme, I want you to know that every tree that God played in the garden, God knew. But specifically, these two trees in the Garden of Eden, we have the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as we're beginning to look at uh, this a little more in depth about the tree of life and what that looks like and what that means in the garden, this is a theme that is not just found there in Genesis, but it's found throughout the Scripture. And so I want us to look here in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 20. It tells us, "...in having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say..." whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It is through this sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the mercy tree of Calvary that we are redeemed, reconciled, and reunited together through the gospel. And notice this phrase that is used throughout the first chapter of Colossians. Over and over and over again, we find this word used, reconcile, reconcile. What does it mean to reconcile something? It means to take two things that are odds with each other, that are against each other, that according to the Bible, you and I, our relationship before Christ with God is that we are enemies of God and that he is against us because we're against him. Yet at the same time, he is for us, desiring that we would repent and believe on him. And so what he does is because we cannot get to him, nor in our sinful nature would we come to him, but it is the goodness of God that draws us and the goodness of God that is shown through the uh, peace, this reconciling peace that comes through the blood of his cross, the cross of Jesus. Y'all, what was a cross made out of? Wood. And what does wood come from? <laughs> right? It's a tree. It's the idea of a tree here, that this life-giving tree of which uh, that the Lord himself uh, paid the price for our sins and offers this reconciliation. Uh, it is countless other scriptures that are given to show and to describe the work of Christ's cross. But this here, I believe, is such a central focus uh, of all the scripture and all of humanity and all of human history. And we can really pinpoint it down to verse 20. Colossians 1.20, if you could really in, in some way sum up the, the whole redemptive history of Genesis to Revelation, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether it be things in earth or things in heaven. Well, we continue on in this idea of this tree, and it, and it presses on then to another scripture. And that's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 2 tells us this. Chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus you could say, is writing these letters to the churches. And the first letter he writes to the church at Ephesus, which was doing pretty good, but had left its first love. He writes to them in verse number 7, 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, that right there immediately points our minds to two places. One, Genesis chapter 2, where God places man in a paradise, the Garden of Eden. And what does he plant there? The tree of life. But it also points our mind to later on in the book of Revelation, specifically to chapter 21 and 22, that describes this tree of life. It tells us in chapter uh, 22 that... In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is seen as one that shows a total and complete enjoyment of all that God has to offer, just as God intended for those who trust in Him. In the garden, what it is representing and what it is showing is what man is meant to, uh, to have and to enjoy. It was not meant for us to be living the lives which we're living now. Man was created to enjoy God forever and to be able to worship Him perfectly and completely and to know Him, to not have any sort of need of reconciliation. You only need reconciliation if there is a fall. You only need reconciliation if there is distance or, or uh, something against one party or the other. And, and so we see in Genesis, before we get to chapter 3 where the fall takes place, that's what human, uh, humanity was supposed to live like. But chapter 3 comes, the fall comes, and the fall brings death and sin and separation. And we see the redemption story all throughout the rest of Scripture. But what does Revelation 21 and 22 bring us back to? It brings us back to a perfect paradise where you and I, who have eaten of the tree of life, if you will, of that of Jesus Christ, that you and I not only get to partake of him, but we get to enjoy him in perfect fulfillment forever that there will be never a time where we will lose paradise again. The, the reason why I believe that firmly is because in, 20, in chapter, Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, and there shall be no more curse. And so what do we have from chapter 3 of Genesis all the way through this portion of Revelation? We have the curse. As a matter of fact, there's a, a Christmas hymn. I can't remember the name of the exact hymn that uh, far as, it has a phrase far as far as the curse is found, is the phrase. And so uh, someone knows it. We'll probably sing it in a month or so. But, it, but that's the phrase that sticks out in my mind because it shows that the curse literally is not just against us as humans and in our sinful nature that we're now born with because of Adam's fall and sin, but it's all of nature itself is literally cursed and groaning to be redeemed, groaning within itself to be reconciled. The, the nature is literally not getting better. Right? You can call it global warming, you can call it this or that, whatever. I don't really care. What I do know is this, that this world, the people in it are not getting better. They're getting worse and worse. And the earth itself is not going to get any better. It's going to get worse and worse. As a matter of fact, it's going to get real bad because it's going to be destroyed by fire. But the great news is this, when Christ returns, we get to be a part of this great rebuilding. We get to be a part of this great new kingdom. Uh, and one day leading to the eternal kingdom where there will be no more curse. What does the curse bring? The curse brings death and sin and separation, but the curse brings the thorns and the thistles. It brings this lack of a paradise. It brings about a place of which you and I were not created to, to live like. And so all of creation from Eden to the eternal city 
is meant for us to know and enjoy the glory and presence of the Creator Himself. That's, that's the Bible. That's the story of what God has been doing since time began, to redeem a people unto Himself uh, for their good and for His glory. We see this, though, that man can only partake of the fruit of the tree by grace through faith in Christ. So the idea of this tree of life, it is a gift, it is eaten by faith, and it is a picture of Christ Himself, the only one who can give us an eternal life and as well continue to sustain us in an eternal state and to one day bring about this sort of ultimate paradise of which we were meant to live in. Now, you and I might go on vacation and you might be sitting on the beach. You might have your, your toes in the sand, look at the water, look at the waves or whatever. I don't like the beach. So for me, it's in a couple of weeks, I'll be in the Smokies on a, on a front porch of a cabin with a cup of coffee and a book. And we'll say phrases like, man, this is just heaven, right? We say that, but it's not, right? Because that cup of coffee is going to run dry, that book's going to finish. I'm going to get hungry again, or I'm going to have to get up or walk the dog. That's not quite heaven. Heaven's coming, though. Heaven is, is coming. We, we get to one day, as we talked about, that seventh day of rest. That day of rest is coming. But it's only coming to those who eat of the tree of life. And you would say, well, where is this tree? How can I partake of this tree? Now, we're going to answer that here in just a couple of minutes because it goes and ties into what Jesus talks about because not only is he what we and I would call a tree of life, but he's the bread of life and the living water, or the water of life. Now this moves on here. I want to look here for just a moment at something that most of you, and myself included, will ask questions about. And guess what? I don't have the answers either. You can write them down. I got nothing for you, all right? It is about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It tells us this here in the scripture. I want to read for us down at verse number eight it says and the lord god planted a garden eastward in eden and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground made the lord god to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil so the questions begin as soon as we read about that and especially as we know what takes place and foreshadows in chapter three that uh-oh there's if we stop and we we only have and God's made everything that's pleasant, the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And that's the end of that verse. We go, well, it's pretty good, <laughs> it, right? But what happens is we have the next verse that says, in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And for you and I who've read the Bible, we kind of go, uh-oh, it's coming, right? It, it's like reading that little, it's like reading a, a child, a story. And because you've read that story, they don't know it's coming yet, but you do. And you go, uh-oh, it's about to get bad. Right? There's the potential for bad. And if there's a potential for sin, there will be sin. That's the great thing about heaven is I don't believe that there will be a potential for sin because the curse is removed. And so that's the great thing about it is once we're in heaven, there will be no more chance or opportunity for me to fail God again. That, that perhaps might be one of the most glorious aspects of the eternal life that we have in Christ. So the tree of nods of good and evil. I want to give you what someone who is much smarter than I would say about it. He says, in the context... However, the emphasis falls on the prohibition rather than the properties of the tree. It is shown to us as forbidden. It is idle to ask what it might mean in itself. This was Eve's error. As it stood prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship, to be self-made, resting one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world 
in defiance of the Creator. Even more instructive is the outcome of the experiment. See uh, chapter 3, verse 7. In all this, the tree plays its part in the opportunity it offers rather than the quality it possesses, like a door whose name announces only what lies beyond it. Now, here, when we look at the tree and we say the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we come to mind many questions like, what was the fruit? What did it taste like? What did it look like? What would it do? Why would it be bad? What was so special about it? Is it eating the fruit itself that is the issue? Because then does that mean that the fruit of the tree of life is, you know, if as long as you eat that fruit, you're good, right? As long as you're eating whatever that fruit is, you're fine. But the moment you stop, you start deteriorating. What is it? We, we automatically, in our minds, physically, we go, well, as long as I eat from this tree, I'm good, right? But if I eat from this tree, then I suddenly turn into, for some reason, it reminds me of in Disney movie in Snow White. Y'all know that, that nasty old witch creature, right? right? That's what makes you think you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you take the first bite, and you shrivel up, and you start pruning up, I guess, and you look ugly and wretched and all that stuff. That's not quite what we're dealing with here. The idea is that it's less about what the fruit actually is, and it's more about the spiritual aspect. God said, here's all the garden. Enjoy it. And it's meant for you to enjoy. God didn't make the garden because he thought, man, I'm hungry. I'd like a salad or some oranges or whatever. No, he made it for man to enjoy. He made it for man to have rule and dominion over. He says, but there's another tree here in the midst, and you're going to see it, and you can look at it. And even just like he had just said in chapter 2, verse 9, and what Eve would even say in chapter 3, verse 6, it looks good for food, it's pleasant to the eyes, but he says, don't eat of that tree lest ye die. So is it about the fruit? He's saying, hey, by the way, I planted a poisonous tree. No, it's the idea of faithfulness, unfaithfulness, obedience, disobedience. Life, death, relationship, separation. All right, we see, we see here, I made myself a little graph tonight. You got the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And to eat of the tree of life means that you were eating by faith. You were obedient to God and his word and his command, which at this point, he's got one law. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Everything else, enjoy. Eating of the tree of life by faith and by obedience brings life. However, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil shows that you're faithless because you don't trust what God has said about it, that we would die. Ultimately, the demise of Adam and Eve is not that they were tricked or beguiled by the devil, but rather that they themselves stopped believing what God had said. It was a lack of faith. It was that their faith was that, well, you know, God has said that, but I mean, I don't know about dying. I don't, I don't know if it's that bad. It looks good, so it must not be what's so bad. Maybe the, maybe the devil is, maybe the serpent is right. We'll just try it one time and see. You see, to partake of this tree is to disobey God. To disobey God is to remove oneself from being able to partake of the tree of life. This is why we must come to the tree of life, the cross of which Jesus died, to be clothed in his righteousness, so that one day in heaven we can fully enjoy the tree of life in his perfect presence forevermore. And we see this tree of life and this idea of partaking by faith all throughout the rest of the scriptures. Because what we're going to see as we move on from Genesis all the way through Revelation is that those who are saved are saved not because they did something, but because they had faith in what God had said. 
They trusted God, and it was imputed or counted unto them for righteousness. This also shows as well the importance of the eternal um, weight of these two trees and the idea of the trees of the tree of faith, of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil and, and death, and partaking of it, is that God kicks them out of the garden and will not let them back in because He says, lest they eat of the tree of life and stay this way forever. I firmly believe that it, it was not the, the fruit itself of the tree that He did not want, but rather it was an eternally damned state that they would stay in. It was a place of which they would, could not go back to. Because they had sinned, they could not get back to that tree. That's where their work begins. That's where they're having to go. And, and even soon, I believe, to make sacrifice. Because what does chapter 4 immediately do? It starts with sacrifice and worship, doesn't it? And, and notice that we never find anything in between chapter 3 and 4 where Adam and Eve discussed a sacrificial system. Yet Cain and Abel both know what they're supposed to bring to the altar of God to offer him for sacrifice. Cain says, I'm going to bring you some fruits and vegetables. And, and, you know, that's it. Abel says, I'm going to bring you the best of my flock, and it's going to be a blood sacrifice. Why? And we'll see with this later. I'm jumping ahead about a chapter or two. But the, the real reason is this important. Because in order to approach the tree of life, we have to do so on God's terms. We have to do so God's way. It cannot be any other way. And as the Bible goes on to show all throughout the rest of Scripture, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what happens in the garden is that we have a paradise that is then tainted with sin because of man's disobedience, partaking of the tree of disobedience and of evil. And then God himself is the one who will, who will bring about the shedding of innocent blood to then clothe the guilty ones. People say, well, why couldn't God just make it right? And why couldn't God just leave him in the garden and give him a second chance? Well, God gave them more than what he could ever do. He gives them a beautiful picture of what he was going to do thousands of years later with his son. And that is take something that is innocent to clothe the guilty. And so the tree of life here in the garden then points to the fact that since man can't get to it there, that there's nothing that man can do on his own works to get back to that tree. But instead, God comes and dies on a tree for us to offer that all those who partake of him by faith, can then look forward to Revelation, the eternal city, where we then can partake of the tree of life forever. Now, that, that's mind-boggling to think how God has planned all of this out. Now, we can still try to ask all the millions of questions about what kind of fruit, what kind of this and that. But the real key is not what fruit is it, but the fruit is this, faithfulness or disobedience. That's the real fruit of the trees. And so then we see onward end of this chapter as we move forward in, in verse 10 there's going to be more of a description about eden all right and more questions will arise where is it at is it still there can we get there has anyone seen it all these different things the answer to those things is i don't know where it's at neither do you and neither does anybody else because what happens in a few short chapters is there's a worldwide flood that will literally change the face of the earth forever nothing will be the same and, and but what happens here in chapter two the way that god sets up the garden there's going to be one source with four rivers coming out of it, and it's going to be a beautiful picture of what we just read earlier in Revelation where there is one source, one river flowing from it that provides life and a paradise for all, uh, for all of God's people. It says in verse number 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, 
and from thence it was parted and became into the four heads. The name of the first is Pison, and that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedulam and the onyx stone. Some of these are well named later on for the making of the tabernacle and the temple, as well as later named on in Revelation for the description of the eternal city. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He makes these stones for a reason because there in the paradise of God, the gold and the onyx and the bedulum and all these things that man can see points to the fact that one day there's going to be a city literally made out of these things for us to enjoy God's presence forever. It's mind-boggling to think. think. And that's why over in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 36, tells us, oh, the depths and the riches of the knowledge of God. Right? Who's been his counselor? Who, who has given him advice? Right? They, therefore, everything is by him, through him, and to him. And to him be glory forever. Amen? Because from long before he even makes the garden, he's already planned, I'm going to put a garden. There's going to be a river. There's going to be all these beautiful pictures of what I'm going to do for mankind throughout all of human history. And one day, it's all going to come back. And there will be a renewed paradise and an eternal paradise forever. And the same things we're seeing here, we're going to see there, but even better because there won't be no more curse. We're even a potential for it. He then says, And the name of the second river is Gihon, and the same uh, is that compassed the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, and, and that it is which go toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, you probably recognize a couple of rivers. I believe the Pison that you would recognize and the Euphrates that you would recognize. And even one is still named, at least today for sure, the Euphrates, still considered to be a real river. And some would say, well, does that mean that the Garden of Eden was there and where it's at today in, in modern-day Iraq? Well, you would ask um, Saddam, and he'd probably say, yeah. He probably wouldn't say it anymore. But it's not, it's not the garden there. In fact, they had plans for a long time to try to recreate a garden. And he can't do it. Man cannot recreate the garden of God. Only God can make the garden of God. And so you can make something as beautiful as you'd like, and it's still not there. And by the way, just because something is named today, what was there, does not mean it's in the same place. How about this? Um, There are many cities or towns, especially here on the East Coast, where the first settlers came in the 13 colonies. Where did they come from in the colonies? They came from Europe. And so why are many towns named what they're named after? Because they're named after towns or rivers over in Europe, specifically that of England and where many of our ancestors originally came from. And so it's this idea that they get off the ark, and as they begin repopulating and they see things and they start naming things, well, let's name it because we remember what it used to be maybe in this area. I don't know. But remember this river that was called this? Well, let's call this one that, right? And so there's a renaming that goes on. And as we'll see later on after the flood, much of what man has to redo is what Adam was called to do there. He had to have dominion, name some animals. Well, man, after the flood, as they're growing in population, is having to rename and repopulate and rediscover things all over again. And they're rediscovering a brand new world because the old world has literally been destroyed and washed away. So then he says, in looking at all of this, that this rivers, the land, and the precious stones, this is very important. I want to look here. There's originally one river as a source for the other four. There is one source, if you will, for these other rivers. It is right here. Right? And this is no longer the same because the catastrophic flood 
that has forever changed the landscape of the world. So we can try to ask the futile questions of, where is it at? Can we find it? Is it there? And there's many today who say, I found it. Well, probably baloney, right? You didn't. One day, though, God will take care of all that, and we'll get to see it, and we won't even worry about it. As a matter of fact, as beautiful as the Garden of Eden is here and described here, and we don't know where it's at, I can't imagine the beauty of the eternal heaven and the eternal city that we're going to go to. That, that's what we're longing and looking forward to. Now, what is described here in these verses does resemble and reflect the future tabernacle, temple, and the eternal city. I'm going to read for you this where we're going to get into some scriptures tonight. So you've got your Bible flipping fingers ready? If not, pull them out your pocketbooks and get ready, okay? All right, first, <laughs> you like that? Save, that? save that for another group sometime. <laughs> Turn with me real quick to Exodus 17. We're going to go throughout all the Bible here. Not every book, all right? I know I started with the next one over. We're not going to go through all of them. But over here in Exodus 17, I want us to look specifically at this idea of these rivers and the water of life, this living water that God offers. The same way that we had seen the tree of life kind of thrown throughout all of human history and throughout redemptive history, throughout the Bible, ultimately with the peak of Christ and then looking forward to the, the eternal city, we also find the same thing true of water. Water is very important, right? Water does a lot of stuff. You're made up mostly of water, right? The rest of you is blood and spam or something. I don't know, right? B bones and stuff, right? Well, I don't, but mostly made up of water. What do you got to drink to survive? Water. What do you need to make Kool-Aid? <laughs> water, right? It's important stuff. We need water. Water is used for almost everything. Water, we know, does a couple things. One, water cleanses, right? You need water to take a bath, take a shower, however often you do it, please use water and soap if necessary, all right? But use water. It cleanses, doesn't it? There's this beautiful, wonderful thing when you're out and you see that white water going across a rock. You go, man, that's some pure-looking water. That's some good water. It, 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 you know, oh, it even makes you go, I, I could just take a big drink, right? I went right. <laughs> plug in for Deer Park here. But we think water also is used to give life. If you stop drinking water or fluids, what will eventually happen to you very quickly? You will deteriorate, you will die, and you will do so in a not good manner. Furthermore, water is later going to be used throughout the scripture and throughout the tabernacle and temple days for ceremonial cleansings washings literally every time these priests do a sacrifice or go into the tabernacle or temple or go to do any sort of ritual or ceremony before after and during they're literally dipping their hands in water and cleansing themselves over and over again even cleansing their clothes and changing their clothes to show this purity this purification that has to happen water is very important we see that all throughout the bible now let's look here first at one of these instances exodus 17 tells us and all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. After their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. That's a problem. Matter of fact, what you miss here, you've got to read the first 16 chapters of Exodus to see, there's upwards of a million and a half plus people here on this excursion out of Egypt. For all of them to not have water, it's not good, right? He says, <laughs> I don't know why it just came to my mind about you know, being a little kid and you're, you're on vacation or it's hot in the summer and you hear the little child or you were that little child that said, I'm thirsty, right? I'm thirsting to death. That's these people here at this time. 
They've got no water. There's nothing there to satisfy. There's nothing there to keep them going. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. I'm thirsty. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Most pastoral prayer, what shall I do unto this people? <laughs> the prayer room pastor right there, right? What shall I do with this people? They'd be almost ready to stone me. That's what we say after the sermon. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel thy rod, and wherewith thou shalt smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did in the sight of the elders of Israel. What happened? Moses did it. He smites the rock, out comes water, the people drink. And it's great, but look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The great thing about this chapter, though, is something beautiful. It's not just talking about a thirsty people in a dry land and Moses hits a rock and out comes water. This points to the fact that one day the rock of ages is going to be smitten. He's going to be crushed. It crushed and, and beaten and abused and placed upon that mercy tree and out of Christ will flow fountains of living water. We even sing songs in sort of relation to this idea of how Christ is that, that well to go and seek forgiveness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And we look and we see that this smiting of this rock points to the fact that Christ the rock would be smitten for us so that all of us who are thirsty could then drink. God knows what he's doing here, doesn't he? Little does Moses know, and, and he very well may, I, I don't know, but I don't think the people at least do, understand that this is pointing to their Messiah who will not come to be conquered, but rather will come and will be smitten and stricken so that all those who are thirsty may drink. Over now into Psalm 46. Psalm 46. We continue this theme. Psalm 46 is one of my favorite psalms uh, found here. I, I use it tremendously in my own life when things are difficult, even when things are good. This is normally one of the first passages I turn to if there's a family in grief or in need or if there's a tragedy. Psalm 46 tells us this, and, and I want us to see the whole passage for a reason. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, look at verse 4, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. The heathen raged and the kingdoms were moved. The he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Now this is not just a psalm given 
to give us hope and comfort when things are bad. But what does this do? As many times as I've turned over to Revelation 21 and 22, look back at verse number 4. There is a river. The streams thereof shall make glad the city of God. Where's Revelation 21 and 22 taking place? The eternal city of God, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He says, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Describes in Revelation 21 22 that there is no need for a temple there because the Lamb is there in the midst. And what does the word tabernacle mean? A dwelling place or to dwell with us. And it says the heathen rage, or excuse me, verse number five, God is in the midst of her. Where's the throne of God in the future heaven? In the midst. What do we see Revelation 21 22 tell us? Out of the throne cometh what? A river of life. And on either side, the tree of life, which produces fruit. So what do we find here? It's a looking forward to the fact that though everything is literally shaken and broken and destroyed, there's coming a day where literally God will be in the midst. God will be our refuge and strength in time of trouble. And that from him flows this river of living water. He says God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Will that new heaven and new earth, will that city of Jerusalem ever be sieged? Will it ever be destroyed or broken down? Will its walls ever crumble or be lit aflame? Never, ever, ever. Why? Because it belongs to God and He is in the midst and it is the eternal dwelling place of God and His people. Then He describes a little bit about what's going to take place before that day. That the heathen are going to rage, don't they, in Revelation? During the tribulation, they rage. They're raging now. They're really going to rage then. And the kingdoms were moved. He uttered His voice and the earth melted. That sounds an awful lot like of what takes place in the tribulation, doesn't it? Isn't this beautiful? He says, Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made. He maketh wars to cease. One day, there aren't going to be any more wars. They're going to have one last war to try to go against him, and there will be one last judgment, and they will be cast into a lake of fire. And then, John says, I behold, in a new heaven and a new earth and a city, God himself comes with his people, and he shall wipe away all tears, and everything's made new. That's the future hope that we're looking for. And he says, Be still and know that I am God. I shall be exalted. I will be exalted. Isaiah 55 now. Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55 is, once more, one of my favorite chapters. We look at this. Isaiah chapter 55. It comes right before Isaiah 56. In case you're wondering. Look how good this is. Isaiah chapter 55 tells us in verse number 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know what that means? It's for free. He says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I've given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. 
for he will abundantly pardon. Those that he has abundantly pardoned here on this earth, he calls all these folks, literally, he's calling the world. If you're thirsty, come. What did you pay for your salvation? Anything? Nothing. Could you give God enough money for it? Could you give God enough works for it? Nothing. He says, come and get this salvation. Drink this living water without money and without price. It's paid for. Come and enjoy all that He is. Now turn then to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus is in the middle of His ministry and He's about to do something that's going to blow His disciples' mind. He's going to go through a place where they don't want to go and where the people there don't want them to be. He's going to take them through a place called Samaria where they did not get along and the Jews looked down upon them. And that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But we come to chapter 4 and it says, They must needs go through Samaria. And in verse number 5, Then he cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now that is very important in the book of Genesis that we're going to see later. In fact, we're going to come back, back to that verse one day. Because the rest of Genesis is leading up to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the life of Joseph is a picture of the life of Christ. And so it, it's going to be good. I, I can't preach that tonight, all right? Y'all be here way too long, okay? I could if you want me to. <laughs> no takers. All right. <laughs> the verse, number, uh, verse number six. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Six hours is, is high noon. Right? It's hot. It's, it's real hot. And, and he's been walking. They're not in air-conditioned cars. They didn't ride their Chevy o- over through Samaria. They walked, and they get there. Their feet are dusty. He's tired, wearied from the journey, and he's thirsty. Now, it's high noon, and it says, Then there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, another sermon is this, though. Women came early in the morning. Why? Because you get your work done that you've got to get done outside early in the morning. Right, when you've got to cut grass, you've got to do shingles, right? What do you see roofers do in the summertime? They're out 5, 6 o'clock in the morning beating and stuff. Why? Because they know come high noon, they want to be off that roof. And so it was a shame for this woman to come. As of course, you guys know the story because of her sinful life. But Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Boy, ain't that good. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep from whence thou hast this living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You see, God's going to use greatly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they revered this well because this is the one that a couple thousand years ago, their ancestor leading to the covenant promise of God, Jacob, makes this well. And for generation, generation, they've drawn from this well. And and here Jesus is sitting by it, who is the same one, mind you, that walks the covenant walk for Abraham, who's put to sleep, that is saying and picturing that he's going to die so Abraham and none of his people have to. He's going to die in their stead to offer them life. And that he's the same one who has said, everyone who thirsteth, come unto me and drink. He's the same one who has made that garden that's got that living water. He's the same one who made that tree of life. 
He's the same one who knows all about this well. He's the same one who knows Jacob better than anybody. Why? Because he made Jacob. I believe he walked with Jacob. He talked with Jacob. And I believe that he wrestled with Jacob. He says, Art thou greater? And Jesus answered, said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. And he's pointing. Whoever drinks from this well, right? Y'all been drinking from this thing for generation, generation, and y'all keep having a... It, tomorrow morning, lady, you're going to be back here to get more water. Why? Because you're going to be thirsty again tomorrow. He says, But whosoever drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. How good is that? The Lord is doing there. Then, over in Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7. Y'all, when God writes the Bible, and mind you, this is God-breathed, God-inspired, absolutely inerrant, infallible, preserved, sufficient for us. God has this Bible recorded and written over the span of about 1,500 years, use 66 separate books using these different authors, yet all of them, every single one, historically accurate, historically preserved, historically inspired by God, and all of them point to one message. And that is Jesus Christ, the living water, the tree of life, the redemption, the reconciliation that is found in what God alone has done for His people. Revelation chapter 7, verse number 17 tells us this. Matter of fact, we'll back up a couple of verses. Verse number 14 says, <clears throat> And I said unto him, Sir, Thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Then we go over a few more chapters to chapter 22, verse number 17. Chapter 2, verse 20, uh, excuse me, chapter two, 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What is the message of the Scripture? Come. There's living water. There's bread of life. Come. He doesn't say get your life and your act right. Get your nicest water bottle or your nicest thing to draw from. Come with your best. Get yourself pure. And then come and maybe have a, have a swig. No, he says whoever you are, no matter how thirsty you are, no matter where you come from, come. But the sad reality is that not all will come. But those that come and drink of the living water come by faith, which is what those who have ever drank or eaten of the tree of life, the tree or the living water, those who have been saved or born again or imputed the righteousness of God, it has all been of faith. Tonight as we come, the invitation should always be come, come. This is a great day and a great opportunity and we are calling all who hear our voice and who know us and who are around, who we see, 
to come and drink of this living water. Why? So that they would never thirst again. We're called to come and to drink of Christ, the living water. And He and His Word is a well that will never run dry. Nor will ever that water be stagnant or stale. It will always be a fountain overflowing, beautiful, clear, refreshing, life-giving, life-preserving water. And as we end tonight, the description of of the garden is is pretty well done here in chapter 2. Next week, we'll get into what God then does as He begins to give the responsibility and the job out of what Adam is called to do in that garden. As one commentator writes about this, he says, the depiction of the garden as a primeval tabernacle of God, followed by the description of God's placing of humanity in the garden, bears a strong resemblance to the later establishment of the priesthood in the tabernacle and the temple. Meaning that you and I were always meant to know and experience the presence of God and to drink from His living water. We weren't meant to die. We weren't meant to be in sin. We weren't meant to be separate, but that's what disobedience does. That's what eating of the wrong tree does. And there are far too many today who are continuously eating from the wrong tree and drinking from a well that will have to keep trying to get day in and day out and draw this water all on their own. We would call that religion. We would call it works. We would call it fleshly. We would call it sinful. But there is a fountain that has this living water that they need to know about. See, we were never meant to hunger or thirst, and that's why the great news that we just read in those scriptures that says, and they shall not hunger, nor shall they thirst, and God shall wipe away all tears. That's why that promise is so beautiful, because we're going to be restored to the way things were supposed to be. And it points to the fact that only Christ can truly satisfy. The tree of knowledge of good and evil may have been the sweetest fruit in all of the garden. It ultimately ended up being the most bitter. But yet, Every time we eat or drink of the Word of God and by faith partake of Christ and His living water, Him being the bread of life, it's never stale, it's never bitter, it always satisfies our hungry and thirsty souls. And it points to the fact that as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who will hunger and thirst after righteousness are those who have tasted righteousness. To taste righteousness means that we know righteousness, that we've trusted righteousness, and it's not our own, but it is the righteous one of God who is this great fountain. Tonight, I know there's an awful lot of things that we tried to cram in here to get through. The great truth is this, that we find that all throughout the Bible, God points to the fact that man is meant to know him, to walk with him, to be reconciled and redeemed and restored. And man is not meant to live this sinful condition or sinful world, but has this open invitation to all of creation to come unto Him and to drink. This means, one, come unto Him and be saved. Drink the living water and be saved and thirst no more. But as well, every time in your walk that you are in the valley of the shadow of death, every time that you are wearied from your journey or thirsty or with tired feet, to come back and drink some more of this well that will never run dry and experience a fresh and anew that living water. And every time that we drink of the Word of God and every time that we are satisfied 
of, our, of everything that Christ can give to us on this earth, it points to the fact that one day we will have the ultimate satisfaction and enjoyment of Him forever. Right now, and every moment walking with Christ now, points us one day we're going to be with Him forever. Live today for eternity. Live today for the living water for all of the eternity's sake. Tonight, may we just praise the Lord and thank Him that all throughout His Word, His message is clear. And may tonight we once more come unto Him and drink. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for the truth that is found all throughout it, God. That You have offered living water to our thirsty souls. Help us tonight, even those of us who are saved, to, to drink again and to be reminded of Your goodness and Your faithfulness to be longing and looking forward to that day of seeing you face to face. Help us to enjoy the Scripture that you've given to us, to study, to meditate on, to, to, to chew on, Lord, so that we would get all the truth of what you would have given to us, so that we might not just know more about you, but to know you more and to walk closer with you each and every day. God, I pray that we continue to use these wonderful people, God, that you would bless them and encourage them, God, strengthen them, protect them spiritually. God, that you would... Uh, continue to show your power and your presence in their life and that you would continue to answer their prayers and Lord, that you continue this great work that you are doing in this place. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all have a great night. And don't forget this Sunday, bring your Bible.